This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. A quick warning. This episode has some explicit language. On the afternoon of April 29th, 1992, Tim Goldman was running errands with his best friend. It was a mostly clear, balmy day, the kind Los Angeles is known for. First, they went downtown to sell one of Goldman's cameras and grab some lunch. After that, they drove to Gardena to help another friend move a few things with their truck. You know, we're not listening to the news. We're jamming music and having a good time just riding in the truck. When they arrived at the friend's house, they could tell something was wrong. I go in, I'm like, hey, what's up? And everybody looking all sad, and I'm like, what? What all sad faces? <laughs> What's going on? Goldman and his friend had missed some very big news. And they said, them cops, them cops got off. And my stomach, man, just like, I was stunned. Tim Wynn, innocent of all charges. Ted Brasino, innocent of all charges. Stacy Coon, innocent of all charges. And Lawrence Powell, innocent of all charges but one. And the jury deadlocked on that one. Goldman was astonished. In the months leading up to the trial, he'd watched George Holliday's videotape over and over again. He felt certain that the officers who beat Rodney King were going to be punished for what they'd done. One of the neighbors down, down the street, Mr. Young, and, you know, I was talking to him one morning. I was like, you know, I think the verdict's going to come out today. And, and he said, nothing going to happen to them cops. I'm like, no, Mr. Young, man, they got caught on tape. They're going to jail. He was like, ain't nothing going to happen to them cops. That older man had been right. Nothing did happen to those police officers. What's going through my mind is, man, there's like no hope. If they can get caught on videotape beating the hell out of somebody, damn near killing him. Hell, <laughs> and they, and, they're, and I, that sent a message to them. Like, we can beat the hell out of you and on tape and, and they'll floss in front of the tape and we not, nothing's going to happen to us. Goldman was 32 years old. He'd been a little kid during the 1965 Watts riots. His only memory was of a tank rolling down the street. Growing up, 
Goldman heard about the LAPD sweeping through South Central to hassle the residents, most of them black. He told me that when he was 13, a cop detained him for pulling a fire alarm. Goldman says the officer pointed a gun at his head and handcuffed him to a telephone pole. Man, I couldn't, I, I didn't like cops after that. I didn't care if they were black, white. I just didn't like them. So he was under no illusions about what the LAPD and its officers were capable of. But now he was learning a lesson that had been imparted on generations of Black Americans. The criminal justice system guaranteed Black victims, especially victims of police violence, nothing. Goldman understood that now, deeply. It felt gutting and traumatic, but also kind of liberating. Now you got a a more youthful group of people who were interested in, you know, the outcome of this uh, of this trial who are not going to sit back. And I was like, oh, hell no, this is, no, no, this, we're we, 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 we going to do something about this. That Wednesday afternoon, people all over Southern California were coming to terms with the verdict. A lot of them were young black men, and they were angry. Minutes after the announcement, more than 300 people gathered outside the courthouse in Simi Valley. Another 300 showed up in the San Fernando Valley, near the site of the King beating. Others converged on Parker Center, the LAPD's headquarters downtown. Tim Goldman headed back to his home in South Central. He was there only a few minutes when his friends started shouting from outside. I can hear him yelling, Tim, Tim, we got to go. Something going on at Flores and Normandy. And I, I, I shoot out the door with my camera, man. My instinct was to grab the camera. It fully charged, had the new super pack battery on it. And I ran, I jumped in his truck. Flores and Normandy, well, here we come. Officer down. <laughs> on April 29th, Goldman kept his camera running for about two hours. Uh, officer needs help. <laughs> I hope, I hope uh, he needs help getting his ass kicked because uh, I don't like police. The intersection of Florence and Normandy was about a half mile away. Goldman, an Air Force veteran, could tell there was a big commotion. We could see the police helicopter and they mean they're making tight turns, which means there's something there's something serious going down. It's like they're like in the combat zone. They're like they're tight. They're turning real tight. They didn't know it, but Goldman and his friend were headed for the epicenter of the largest civil disturbance in American history. What they saw there would electrify their neighborhood and horrify the country. This is Slow Burn. I'm your host, Joel Anderson. In March 1991, Black people in Los Angeles had seen the videotape of Rodney King being beaten. In November, they'd seen Soon Jadu sentenced to probation for killing 15-year-old Latasha Harlins. The not guilty verdict on April 29, 1992, was the final straw. Protests spread from the San Fernando Valley to downtown LA to South Central, where Goldman waded into the unrest. Those first few hours were crucial. They would set the tone for the disastrous days to come. 
What happened when people took to the streets? Why did the LAPD retreat in the midst of growing chaos? And how did the city's failure to prepare accelerate its collapse into anarchy? This is episode six, No Peace. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Black leaders in Los Angeles had been making plans for the verdicts. The day before, they'd met at one of L.A.'s oldest Black churches. They called their plan Operation Cool Response. It involved a peaceful rally. Activist Danny Bakewell didn't expect a lot of trouble. I was of the impression that there's no way these guys are going to be vindicated. So therefore, we will accept, you know, a, a verdict that's in our best interest without violence. We're not, we're not just trying to, you know, spark into violence for violence's sake. LAPD Chief Daryl Gates figured that at least one of the officers would be convicted and that the city would likely remain peaceful. But if there was an uprising, Gates believed that he and the LAPD were ready. In 1965, Gates had been charged with leading the department's response to the civil disturbance in Watts. Although the police had failed to keep a lid on the violence, Gates' profile grew. He gave speeches and wrote a training manual on riot control. If things got ugly again, Gates assumed events would unfold like they did in 1965, with most of the rioting happening at night. So that's what he and the department planned for. He set aside $1 million for police overtime, and he recorded a five-minute video that was shown at precincts around the city. In the message, Gates told his officers that it was their job to maintain calmness. He also told his officers that Black leaders were threatening unrest. Now, there are some uh, in our community, supposedly responsible leaders, who have suggested that if the verdict doesn't come out the way they believe that it ought to come out, that uh, some will take to the streets and there may be some violence in the city. Some people thought those comments weren't helpful. Maybe Gates isn't trying, but he's sending shockwaves through the community. He's telling the police department that there are all those people out there who want to stir things up. He has chose to set us against each other, the police against the civilians, blacks against whites. LAPD Lieutenant Michael Hillman was in charge of the Metro unit, an elite team used for only the riskiest situations. Hillman wanted to deploy the Metro team before it got dark, but he said a deputy chief told him that wouldn't be necessary. I mean, I was was a madman uh, well in advance of this thing because people were not paying attention. That's Hillman in an interview a few years after the riots. Some were like, it'll never happen. 65 will never come back. We'll never have a situation like that because they're probably going to have convictions. And if we have convictions, then there probably will not be any type of civil disorder. They were not reading the signs. Somebody didn't listen. A lot of people didn't listen. L.A. Times reporter Jim Newton spent the afternoon of April 29th at Parker Center, 
LAPD's headquarters. His job was to cover the department's reaction to the verdict. It was tense. Uh, The administrative offices were up on the sixth floor, but I was down uh, on a floor that had more rank-and-file folks, um, where the entrance was, etc. And all of that kind of came to a stop as people gathered around television sets uh, to await the verdict. It was 3.15 p.m. The jury in the Los Angeles police beating of black motorist Rodney King returned verdicts late today. Not guilty on all but one count. And, the jury- and it's that at that moment that I became aware that people in the, who were around me were delighted uh, at that verdict. Some of the officers around Newton pumped their fists and exchanged high fives. The predominant mood around me seemed to be that they felt vindicated and that the jury had seen through what many people, what many officers regarded as a politically motivated prosecution. The celebration didn't last long. About 10 minutes later, protesters started gathering outside of the building. From inside, Newton could see the angry crowd through the bank of windows on the ground floor. And things turned sour fairly quickly. The protesters did storm the doors of Parker Center. And you can see they broke the, they, uh, broke the glass, uh, glass everywhere. They People are getting more and more agitated. I feel that it's a great travesty of justice. I feel that the jury in Simi Valley gave the okay to continue to abuse and oppress and suppress black people in this country. And I I couldn't sit in my home and just watch it on television. I had to come here and let my voice be heard. Where are these people from? As Newton kept an eye on the windows, he talked with two members of the city's police commission. One of the commissioners told Newton that he hadn't seen or heard from Daryl Gates. I became aware from them that Gates was unaccounted for. The whole city had been waiting for this verdict for a year, and then suddenly it was there and the chief was AWOL. It was becoming clear that if Gates had a contingency plan, it wasn't much of one, and very few people knew what it was. I assumed that Gates would be personally in control of this because this was a a high-level uh, response that would that would be closely watched and that the city uh, would depend on capable leadership in it. So to discover that he wasn't there uh, was shocking. Let's take a quick break. Mayor Tom Bradley watched the verdicts come in from his office at City Hall. He was overcome with anger. He, too, had believed the officers would be convicted. Around 5 p.m., almost two hours after the verdict, with the streets starting to fill with demonstrators, Bradley went on TV to appeal for calm. I know that we must express our profound outrage, our anger, but we must do so in ways that bring honor to ourselves and our communities. We must not bury the gains we have made in the rubble created by destructive behavior. Everyone had been looking for Daryl Gates for the past couple of hours, waiting for him to take charge. As it turned out, he'd been sitting in his office, alone. He finally emerged to make his own public statement, about a half hour after Bradley's. If we have civil disturbances, we are prepared to deal with that. And uh, I'm not going to go into any detail. Uh, Our job is to maintain peace and order on the streets. Just as Daryl Gates addressed the public, Some of his officers were on the streets of South Central, facing a precarious situation. We can feel the tension among people as we're driving. Uh, They were very upset with law enforcement. That's Sam Arase, 
He was a sergeant in the LAPD. You can feel the, the anger. Uh, people were cussing at us, you know, lifting their fists up like they were angry with us. Arase and his partner were on patrol in South Central after the verdict. As they were driving, the officers received a call for assistance near the intersection of Florence and Normandy. Four police officers were being pelted with rocks and bottles by an angry mob. And we were actually the uh, first unit to arrive at Florence and Normandy. One of the officers identified a rock thrower, a 16-year-old boy from the neighborhood. And I, and I said, you know what, that's BS. You know, he's going to jail. We chased into 71st in Normandy, and then we ran uh, eastbound uh, through the street. He ran through a, a down chain fence, and I continued through, and he was throttling the fence. So I caught him in between, and then there's two other officers right behind him, and we were able to take him to custody. As Arase and the other arresting officers pressed the boy into the ground and put him in handcuffs, the boy yelled out, I can't breathe. And then I noticed as we were handcuffing him that a crowd was forming around us. That's when I began to realize uh, this, this may turn ugly. We put out uh, additional units request and more officers showed up. We had the uh, patrol showed up with, uh, with Crash, which is our gang unit, and the detectives rolled up too. The people were coming from everywhere, man. I'm telling you, people were coming from everywhere. That's Tim Goldman. Goldman arrived at Florence and Normandy with his friend. They both had cameras and started recording as soon as they pulled up. There were 35 police officers on the scene and nearly 200 angry residents. They were in their faces, man. You'll, you'll see them pointing their fingers at them. Even they were really going after the black cops. I mean, they, they were really going after me. I mean, you could see it. They call them all kind of names. Man, you need to be ashamed of yourself, boy. They were definitely scared. You could see it in their face. And I was like, that's why I was like, I was, I was like right up in their face. And you could see the tension. You can see it in some of the guys, too. It's like, man, this is, this, I, you know, they didn't teach this, this at the academy. In Goldman's footage from the scene, you can see a bunch of officers forming a line. That group is protecting another set of officers while they finish arresting the teenager who threw the rock. Get that motherfucker! Some cops are holding batons, but most just stand still and place their arms in front as the crowd aggressively confronts them. As a helicopter whirs overhead, people yell, fuck the police. And at least one woman spits at a female officer and calls her white bitch. The officers didn't respond. Arase concentrated on getting the boy into the squad car. I just wanted to make sure that he didn't get taken away from us because that would be a total embarrassment for the police department. Commanding Officer Michael Mullen from the 77th Street Station arrived at the scene to find his officers being pelted with wooden boards and chunks of concrete. They didn't have riot gear, no helmets, no bulletproof vests, no face shields. He later said he was worried they might have to use deadly force on the crowd. So at 5.43 p.m., minutes after Daryl Gates was on television saying the department was prepared for a disturbance, Mullen called for a retreat. Everybody, everybody, everybody. Oh. Next time you take rocks and bottles, 
As the officers rushed to their patrol cars and drove away, Tim Goldman assumed they planned to regroup and return to the intersection. I thought when they evacuated, they were going to come back in riot gear and shut that intersection down. I, I stayed, that's why I stayed and continued to record, because I knew they were coming back. I just thought they were going to go get, you know, go, go regroup, come back in force, beat the hell out of people, get off this intersection. And I stayed there, and they never came back. <laughs> they never came back. My name is Henry Keith Watson, and uh, family and friends call me Kiki. You know, white folks call me Henry Watson. Kiki Watson watched the verdict on TV like millions of others. I, I was one of the naive ones that thought the judicial system was going to work, and it didn't. Watson grew up in South Central and lived about four miles away in Inglewood. He worked two jobs. He was 27 years old, married, and a father. He'd served in the Marine Corps. He told me he once applied to become an LAPD officer. I mean, I was a, a service-oriented type of individual. You know what I'm saying? I wanted to help. Are, are you okay saying, like, why it didn't work out? Like, was it just... No, it was full of shit. I, was, I tried. I mean, I, I took uh, three written exams and, like, five oral interviews. You know what I'm saying? It was just too much bullshit. You know what I'm saying? Too many obstacles. So, you know, obviously I wasn't saying what they wanted me to say. They wasn't hearing, you know, from me what they wanted to hear. When Watson saw the news about the verdict, he caught a ride with the friend over to his old hood. He arrived at Florence in Normandy just in time to see the police pull out. See, they were outnumbered. You know what I'm saying? They were outmanned. They were. I mean, they, you understand what I'm saying? It was a, a massive crowd. You know, and like, what are, what are people saying in the streets? What's what, what's happening as they leave and they roll out? That was a, a, a sense of, of relief, like celebratory, you know what I'm saying? Like we did something, you know what I'm saying? Like we staked our claim, so we won a battle. With the officers gone from the area, Florence and Normandy became ground zero for some of the boldest and angriest agitators in Los Angeles. One boy threw a streetlight pole through the window of a liquor store. People flooded in and took what they could. Looters rushed back out, their arms full of large bottles. Tim Goldman caught the scene on tape. I always say that once the liquor store was looted, I mean, it was literally looted. Everything came out of there, and you know, a lot of liquor in there. The attacks intensified, in my opinion. The crowd had directed its anger at the police. But with the cops now gone from the intersection, the violence turned against civilians who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. A crowd of young black men started throwing objects at vehicles that passed through the intersection. The first victims were a Latino family, the Bejars. Their car was hit with rocks and bricks. A phone book and a metal binder crashed through their windshield. They were rushed to a hospital, their faces bloody from broken glass. Kiki Watson found himself drawn to the action. And anything that came through that intersection that wasn't black was asked out. I, I didn't wake up on April 29th and said, I'm going to make history today by just fucking up the entire city. At 6.43 p.m., 
Almost an hour after the LAPD had fled the scene, a white truck driver named Larry Tarvin drove a delivery truck through the intersection. Tarvin didn't have a radio in his truck. He didn't know about the verdicts in the King trial or about the violence in the area he was driving through. Before he knew what was happening, Kiki Watson had pulled him from his truck, thrown him to the ground, and started beating him. Other people joined in. Goldman captured Tarvin's beating on his camera. That's how fucking Rodney King felt, white boy. That's how Rodney King don't help his white ass. Hey, don't help Tarvin was beaten bloody, then fell unconscious for more than a minute. In a later interview, he said, every time I tried to get up, they knocked me back down. Watson. Dude, Larry Tarvin was a, a victim like anybody else that came through there. I think it was like 21 victims or 14, 17 victims, one right after the other. It didn't matter. You know what I'm saying? Kicking ass and taking names. Eventually, someone helped Tarvin drive away in his truck, which had been picked clean. About a minute later, another white truck driver entered the intersection. His name was Reginald Denny. When Denny saw the mob, he thought maybe he could get through. But then he heard people yelling at him to stop. Rocks came flying through his window. And here I was stuck in the middle of something and didn't know what to do and just figured, well, I'm just going to get out of here as quick as possible. He doesn't remember much of what happened next. We'll talk about that after a quick break. Zoe Turr expected the cops in the King beating would get off. And when they did, she wanted to be ready. I was going to capture the riot that I expected to happen. Tur is a helicopter pilot. In 1992, she ran a freelance news service, shooting aerial footage for TV stations. And we flew to Florence and Normandy. And we started flying at a high altitude. And we started descending a little bit. And over time, we saw the very first rocks being thrown. Tur's helicopter was about 70 feet up when she spotted the attack on Reginald Denny. Oh, look at that. Terrible. That's Tur's voice. She's watching the beating unfold from a co-pilot seat. Tur narrated the gruesome scene live for thousands of Angelinos tuning into TV station KCOP and radio station KNX. And there's no police presence down here. They will not enter the area. Tur's video footage starts with Denny on the ground surrounded by four men. One of them seems to be trying to pick his rear pocket. Another is Kiki Watson, clearly visible on the tape, in a white t-shirt, jeans, and a cap with the tag still attached. Watson holds Denny's head down with his foot. Another man lifts a heavy object over his head with both hands and slams it down onto Denny's head. I asked Watson about that moment. You, you come up on Reginald Denny. He's already surrounded in the street. Do you remember what went through your mind when you saw him there? Nope, not at all. Not at all. It was some, probably some savage shit. This is attempted murder. As Denny tries to get up, another man approaches from behind and kicks him in the back. Then that man hits Denny with a hammer. There's no uh, shutting down Florence. Let's shut Florence Boulevard down. That's the answer. We're going to tell the LAPD to do that now. Tell LAPD to shut Florence Boulevard down and Normandy because people are still driving through here. Another man throws a brick at Denny's head, knocking him unconscious. Denny is lying on his back, his face almost unrecognizable with all the blood. 
Several men celebrate as they circle Denny's body. One digs through his pockets. At least one spits on him. Okay, he's he's moving. He's a lot of blood gushing from the uh, from the man's head. Um, uh, someone standing there taking a picture. He's taking a videotape of the man laying on the street, but nobody's helping him. That man with the video camera was Tim Goldman's brother. Goldman was still fixated on what happened to the other truck driver, Larry Tarvin. I didn't know what had happened until, like I said, I watched the news and they showed the aerial footage and, and I saw the Denny attack and I was like, damn. Four South Central residents who'd seen the attack on TV rushed over to rescue Denny. They loaded Denny into his truck and drove him to the hospital. Watson told me that he stuck around the intersection for a little while, but eventually went home after it got dark. Was there any point at which you thought Reginald Denny might die? Yeah, yeah, of course. Like right then, in the street, or like later? Uh, I don't know, but uh, you know, it, it didn't matter. It wasn't something that I was thinking about, I was concerned about, I mean, you know. From her helicopter, 70 feet above the scene, Zoe Turf felt helpless. It was killing me not being able to save this guy. I was so fucking angry at what I was seeing down below. Reginald Denny did survive with permanent injuries. And Kiki Watson, looking back, he told me he'd been swept up in the violent energy of the mob. My analysis was that on, on that was you you called me one day and said, Kiki, I got some Garth Brooks tickets, right? And I tell you, homie, I don't do no Garth Brooks, dog. You know what I'm saying? But you say, hey, they front row, they on the floor. You know, they're free, you know? Ah, what the fuck? You know what I'm saying? Okay, I, you talk me into it. Let's go, right? And 45 minutes into the show, I'm dosy doing and hee-hawing right along with the rest of these motherfuckers up in here. So that was the same thing with, with the riot. You know what I'm saying? I didn't go down there. I just got swept up into the moment. Before I know it, shit, I was hooking and jabbing and sticking and moving like everybody else. The attack on Denny happened only a few hours into the madness that would consume L.A., but it became the enduring image of the riots, a white man being beaten by a group of black men. The video that had set everything off showed a prone and powerless Rodney King getting the life nearly beaten out of him by a lawless, powerful gang. Reginald Denny was prone and powerless too. And the men who beat Denny nearly to death were definitely lawless, but they weren't powerful. I imagine that Kiki Watson and the other young black men at Florence and Normandy saw themselves in Rodney King, ordinary people at the mercy of the state. At that intersection, they seized back some of the power wielded against them. And it didn't matter who was on the other end of their blows, as long as it hurt. And all the people who drove through the intersection that afternoon, they paid a price they shouldn't have had to pay. Kiki Watson was convicted of assault and spent 18 months behind bars. A month after his release, he apologized to Reginald Denny during an appearance on a daytime talk show. But Watson doesn't apologize for the anger that fed his cruelty. Even today, he says, cops are getting away with the same things that drove people into the streets 30 years ago. They just pull you over and fuck, you, and fuck with you. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and jack you up. I mean, who likes to be jacked up, man, for no reason? That's the biggest gang in our city. And they ride around and they bang on motherfuckers, man. So, you know, fuck the police, man. I don't know what I would have been doing if I didn't have that camera in my hand, man. I probably would have been out there beating the hell out of people, too. As he filmed that day, 
Tim Goldman could be heard on tape disparaging the cops and egging on some of the beatings. I'm surprised I didn't get charged for inciting a riot because I said some I said some things that, you know, I, over the years, you know, you, you, you know, you live with that and you kind of regret it. You know, I may have had uh, some comments about whites and, uh, and Asians, and you can hear those comments on the tapes, too. But almost 30 years later, Goldman has come to see his outburst at Florence and Normandy as a response to more than the verdicts. It, you know, like I had a range of emotions out there. You know, you, you're thinking about junior high school incidents I had with, you know, a white guy who threw, hit me in the back of the head with a boat in class, and I got suspended because I turned around and hit him and going to college in Daytona and, and walking down the street when they're having, like, the international, you know, the Daytona 500, and people are passing, hey, nigger, you know, they passed me on the street, just call it. I mean, you never met me before in, your, in my life. And, uh, and so you... What happened out there, man, and I didn't sanction it, sanction it or anything like that, but, you know, it happened. Let's take a quick break. It was a Pearl Harbor for, for L.A. and for the LAPD. Uh, it, was, it was that big a deal. That's Zev Yaroslavsky. He was a member of the L.A. City Council. Ironically, you know where Daryl Gates was the night that the riots got started. <laughs> While Reginald Denny was being beaten in the street, Daryl Gates was driving to Brentwood. He had quietly slipped out of Parker Center at 6.30 and headed for a mixer in one of the city's most affluent neighborhoods. Eight months earlier, a Blue Ribbon Commission chaired by Warren Christopher had called for major changes to rein in the LAPD. Those proposals were set to go before voters in a month, and Gates was out raising money for the campaign to defeat them. If there was anything, any metaphor for this whole fiasco, it's that Daryl Gates, the chief of police, was not on post because he was out raising money to stop the reforms that would prevent something like this from happening. In Brentwood, about 20 miles from Florence and Normandy, Gates was greeted with applause. It was an intimate affair with no more than 50 people. The sound from the event is distant and muffled, as if someone hit a recorder in their pocket. Gates's voice is instantly recognizable. Yeah, I, only, I wish we didn't have this interruption, but uh, I am going to have to leave in a few minutes. Uh, Gates took questions for nearly half an hour, including a handful about the riots that were happening on the other side of town. So I know what a riot is like. I'm hopeful that this is not going to reach those proportions. And uh, we'll do our best. We know a lot better, a lot more about controlling riots today than we did in those days. Gates did his best to stay on message, even as it became clear he was needed back at headquarters. Anyway, I'm going to have to, to go on. We love you. We think about you. And we love you. Gates didn't get back to the city's emergency operations center until 8.15 p.m. By then, the L.A. skyline was filled with smoke, and the LAPD dispatchers were overwhelmed with emergency calls. By nightfall, dozens of buildings were burning. Firemen could not get to most of them for fear they would be attacked. When one crew tried, a fireman was shot and wounded. 
There was so much smoke over the city that planes landing at L.A.'s airport had to shift directions. Fire crews reported being attacked with rocks and bottles, a crowbar, a pickaxe, and a Molotov cocktail. And even the fire department couldn't get through the phone lines to request police escorts. Gates had missed it all. People were just appalled. L.A. Times reporter Jim Newton. Police chiefs are really expected to, uh, to remain aloof from politics, right? So start with that. He's not supposed to be going to a fundraiser to, to raise money to defeat police reform. Like, even if there had not been a riot, that would have been a, the wrong thing to do. And then, you know, it caused him to not be able to exercise leadership of the department. I mean, you almost couldn't script it that way, in a way that would be more devastating to him and his reputation than for that to be where he was. As the night went on, the nation watched in horror as Los Angeles descended into fire and lawlessness. Zoe Turr and her crew could see the devastation from their helicopter. Hell on earth. It looked like flying over a war zone. It looked like it just plumes and plumes of smoke everywhere. Well, this is the kind of hellish scene that we all were afraid we'd see one day in the city of Los Angeles. We, we thought everything was on fire and there were no police and there were no firefighters at these at the, the, these building fires. How much of this can you shoot? It started looking like one fire looked like another fire that looked like another fire. A little before 9 p.m., Mayor Tom Bradley declared a state of emergency. He asked Governor Pete Wilson to send in the National Guard. Jim Newton again. It was humiliating to the local leadership that it could not handle this problem itself, a problem that it had braced for, that it knew was possible. So my sense is that there was lots of outbreaks of violence um, and that, especially in the early hours, the failure of anyone to try to to try to combat that gave the sense that anyone could be anyone anywhere could get be violent and get away with it. Given months to prepare, Los Angeles had shown itself incapable of coming together to solve the most pressing threat it had faced in 27 years. At 11 p.m., Mayor Bradley made another television appearance. He advised residents to stay off the streets and let them know a curfew would be put into effect the following night. We believe that the situation is now uh, simmering down pretty much under control. And uh, the governor has, has assisted us with a declaration of emergency so that in the event uh, further assistance is needed, it will be able to respond very quickly. Once again, the people in LA streets would have something to say about that. The next day was the worst day. Next week on Slow Burn, the city collapses. God damn it, it really it finally fucking happened. You know, it's like the whole city's fucking exploding. It was very urgent, uh, very, very urgent. Uh, we're running out of bullet. Where are you? What he did say on the phone to me is that, cuz, you know, I'm not even like this. I never told nobody to go burn down the, the city that they live in. Slow Burn is a production of Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. You can sign up for Slate Plus to hear bonus episodes. And in this week's bonus episode, you'll be hearing from Zoe Tur, 
Head over to slate.com slash slow burn to sign up and listen now. It's only a dollar for your first month. We couldn't make slow burn without the support of Slate Plus. So please sign up if you can. Head over to slate.com slash slow burn. Slow burn is produced by Jason DeLeon, Ethan Brooks, Sophie Summergrad, Jasmine Ellis, and me, Joel Anderson. Editorial direction by Josh Levine and Gabriel Roth. Artwork is by Jim Cook. Our theme music was composed by Don Will. Mixing by Merritt Jacob. Some of the audio you heard in this week's episode comes courtesy of Tim Goldman and Zoe Turr, and also from the Department of Special Research Collections at the UC Santa Barbara Library. Thanks to their team. Special thanks to Lou Cannon, Jackson Vanderbecken, Mark Steinberg, Stan Mizrahi, Janae Desmond-Harris, Amber Smith, Bill Carey, Meredith Moran, Seth Brown, Rachel Strong, Chow Tu, Derek Johnson, Asha Saluja, and Katie Rayford. Thanks for listening.